Well, please, as I said, uh, if you've uh, shut it, uh, have Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 12 uh, open is the, the part that we're going to be focusing on and hopefully inside your service sheets is an outline as well. Colossians 2 verse 6 So then, just as you received Christ Jesus, walk in him. I changed schools uh, midway through my uh, secondary school career to a school that was uh, very formative uh, in my Christian growth and mainly because of the friends I met there. And the very first friend I made uh, was a guy called Simon. I remember the very first lunchtime uh, in Y10. It was Simon who walked up to me and invited me to the Christian group, the CU there. And in the early months at this school, he was a great encouragement to me. He seemed so settled and so sure and so mature in his faith in Jesus. But midway through our second last year of school, a new influence came into the school CU. Uh, Two uh, teachers from a strongly charismatic background encouraged the leaders, which by then included Simon and myself, to pursue a more full Christian experience than we'd ever had before. God had so much more to offer us, we were told, than simple faith in Jesus Christ. And I've got to tell you, it was an amazing time. I was 16 and this Christian group, which was fairly dormant and sleepy, took off. I remember stirring worship sessions. I remember earnest prayer for more filling of God, praying for signs of God's power, for prophecy, for miracles, for healing. And Simon, by now a key leader in the group, was swept up in it. We all were, really, but especially Simon. And over the course of the next year, his settled faith grew unsettled and his surety became increasingly anxious anxiously seeking out more and more of what was offered. Eventually he left the leadership team tired, he said, needing to refocus on just his own faith. But my last memory of Simon in our last year of school was on a school camping trip together as the two of us at the end of a day of hiking walked in a a shallow riverbed together talking about the Christian life and he told me he was tired. Tired of faith, he said. Christianity for him had become an empty lie and he was sick of it. I tried to encourage him, this uh, guy who had been such an encouragement to me, but he didn't want to know. And he literally, in front of me, walked past me and ahead down the river. And as far as I know, he is still walking away from Jesus. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus, walk in him. The process of walking away from Christ Jesus is a journey of a thousand steps, not one. A thousand decisions. Simon walked away to find fullness beyond Christ and all he found there was a hollow lie. Others walk away, uh, not for that reason, but for them the full life is found not in Christ but in the world. Again, it's a journey of a thousand steps. I can think of a number of my peers who seemed to have a sure faith but then the full life came. Academic success, relationship success, career success, material success, the full life which became their passion as they let their first passion, Christ, go. And so they walked away from him. I remember one guy who in our last year of school told me that he was going to be a missionary in France. Well, he's been to France, the south of France. He had a great holiday. I've seen the pictures. And my last conversation with him was a 30-minute excited monologue from him about how awesome his new American-style fridge is. Ask him about Jesus and he will barely raise a ripple of enthusiasm, but his fridge, amazing. 
So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus, walk in him. Still others walk away because they just grow tired. Tired of the battle with sin. Tired of making little progress in the Christian life, especially when it comes to overcoming sin after making vows and promising to change strategies to deal with sin that fail over and over again. And despite their religiosity, despite their attendance at church and the small group and their efforts to make up for their sin or to cover it up with moralism, sin keeps crouching at the door and captures them again and again. I remember a guy who struggled for two years throughout university not to sleep with his girlfriend. So many plans he had, so many attempts and finally he said to me, mate, I'm tired of pretending. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus, walk in him. The danger of walking away from Jesus Christ is a journey of a thousand steps. And they're often unnoticed steps, aren't they? Because it's easy as Christians and as a, as a Christian church to neglect the Christian walk because we stop thinking of it as a walk. Yes, we know a, a Christian is someone who receives Jesus Christ as Lord and we rejoice in that moment when we see new life in him. And we know when we ourselves made that decision and we know tonight we are surrounded by those who have likewise received him. But let me ask you this, Christian, tonight, uh, whether it be one week or one year or countless years since you received him, having received him, are you walking in him? How about those around you? Are they walking in him? How would you know? There will be some here who are in the process right now of walking away from him. There will be some here who walked away years ago. And no, it's not as dramatic as my friend Simon and uh, they're still here. But it's easy, isn't it, to be here tonight but not in him. How would you know if you're still walking in him? What, What does it mean to walk in him? Well, let's see that together because it's important, isn't it? So verse 6, having received Christ, so walk in him. If you're going to understand what walking in him means, first you need to understand what receiving him means. And so, as Paul says, he says, just as you received him, walk in him. Well, what does receiving him mean? Well, it's important to understand as we see that verse, uh, what comes to our mind, I suspect, for many of us, and it does for me, is the 20th century, 21st century now jargon that we use when talking of conversion. We speak of the day I received Christ into my life, into my heart. And we spoke of that a few weeks ago, this uh, thinking that betrays our small view of Jesus, our pocket-sized Jesus, our companion Jesus who we allow to come along as a passenger in our life. But when Paul speaks of receiving Christ, the word received here is a technical term for receiving teaching about Jesus, receiving the gospel of Jesus. It's as he said back in chapter 1 verse 6, he said, you received Christ when you heard and understood God's grace in all its truth when you learnt it from Epaphras who faithfully taught you this gospel. To receive Christ Jesus means to receive the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe it. You see, Christian faith, that receiving Christ is not a matter of self-discovery, it's not even a matter of group discovery. It is about receiving that something that has been faithfully passed down to us. It's as Paul says elsewhere in another one of his letters, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says... For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins 
that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what's been passed down. That's what receiving Christ involves. And in due course, what was passed down to Paul and what he passed on to Epaphras was written down in the New Testament, delivered to us by the apostles, the apostolic gospel of which Paul is one. And so here in verse 6, Paul sums up what we have received in the gospel. It's quite simple, isn't it? Christ Jesus as Lord. We've received Jesus. The man Jesus, the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, we've received and believed and accepted what he did and where he lived and what his life was about. And we've received him as the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament promises again and again. All the promises of the Old Testament are yes in him. And perhaps most importantly, we've received him as Lord, our King. Here's what's wonderful about that objective truth. It is, as Colossians 1 verse 6 says, God's grace in all its truth. You want to know God's grace, you want to know his goodness, his love for you, this is it, this truth about Jesus who is the Christ, who is your Lord. And it is a truth that is not only God's grace in all its fullness, but it is enough to give you, as the Colossians have received, hope laid up in heaven, indestructible hope. Now, says Paul, having received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Walking not on some other basis, walking not to some other place. No, don't graduate from Christ, he says, just as you received him, so walk in him. Walk, Paul says. He captures here, I suspect, the, the, uh, the Jewish concept of halakha, the way of life, the walk of life. When Paul says walk in him, it's not some vague, abstract thought. He's talking about real life. He says, you who have come to confidently trust in Jesus Christ, that's great. Now take that confidence for a walk. Paul is talking about faith in the real world, our actual conduct, what we think and don't think, what we say and don't say, what we do and don't do. Walking in Christ concerns the nitty-gritty of our life. It concerns the reality that I no longer walk for myself as I walk out to whatever Monday will hold for me tomorrow. Walking as I please. No, as uh, Colossians 1 verse 10 told me, I walk now for his pleasure. I've received him as my Lord. I must walk in him. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, Jesus is Lord there. And as we continue in this uh, letter, in chapter 3, Paul will mark out the amazing terrain of this walk. We'll see how it includes our sexuality, our coveting, our anger, our dislikes, our frustrations. It includes our words about others, our offensive words. It includes our kindness, our patience, our love, our forgiveness. It includes our marriages, our work, our church life. In fact, we'll see whatever we do in word or deed must be walked in him. And so why does Paul make this urgent plea to a, to a people, if you look back one verse in Colossians 2 verse 5, who are walking in him, whose faith is firm, whose life is well ordered, why would he be making this appeal if they're already doing it? Well, he's making it because walking in him is not a straightforward activity in a world like ours. A world under, we were told in chapter 1, under the dominion of darkness a world where Satan, the father of lies, is at play. 
And so in chapter 2, verse 8, he makes his warning. He warns them of a very serious danger along the way. It's a warning that we must take seriously. And it's hard to take it seriously. It's hard for us to take a warning seriously because we don't like to be warned, challenged, admonished, as he'd said back in chapter 1, verse 28. I mean, how patronising to be warned about your Christian life. It's like a parent saying to a young driver, now drive carefully. I always want to say, well, what do you think I'm going to do? Think I'm planning to do something else? I just needed to get that anger out. I've had it for years. So patronising. Why is he warning them? They're they're doing fine. But Paul knows this is part of proclaiming Christ. He said that in verse 28 of chapter 1. But it's never easy to do this part of proclaiming Christ, is it? Never easy. In fact, it's easy not to do it at all, not to warn each other, not to be warned. To have a church family or a small group that is, if you like, a warning-free zone, a challenge-free zone. Friendships where the hard word is never said about the Christian life. Well, not directly. Where it has seemed unloving to challenge another person, to point out a danger. Or perhaps from the opposite perspective, when admonished, we respond with defensiveness. How dare they say I'm in danger of walking away from Christ? I'm doing fine. But, Paul says, you are in serious danger. You really are. He says to the Colossians who, as we saw in verse 5, are living well-ordered lives and their faith is firmed. He says there's a danger on the path ahead of you. And so see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. As you walk this road, Paul says, realise there's a kidnapper on the road ahead of you. And that's what the Greek word means when he says take captive. It's this rare and vivid Greek word that pictures someone carrying a person off bodily and snatching them away into slavery. It's, it's what the slave traders do. They would sneak up on you and grab you and off you were a slave. That's Satan's aim. He aims to bundle you up with lies and take you away from Christ. And so Paul writes to this new Christian community, well aware of the dangers on the road, well aware of the climate of their time, And we too live in a climate where there is real and present dangers that Satan may use to deceive us, to captivate us. And so heed the warning of verse 8. And see in verse 8, and the the similar warning he had back in verse 4 of this chapter, see what Satan will use to take us captive. He uses fine-sounding or plausible, believable words and thoughts to tell you these hollow lies. Satan's aim as you walk along in Christ is to sell you a fine, impressive, reasonable, captivating lie that you're going to believe and walk away from Christ. And in verse 8, when Paul talks here of philosophy, he's not just talking about the the sort of highfalutin philosophy that a, a, a philosophy PhD student may do. He's talking about that, but he's also wrapping up every worldview that you could possibly imagine, every way of thinking about this world and about life. And he says, when it doesn't have Christ in its place, you want my estimation of it, it is a hollow lie. No matter how well constructed, no matter how well accepted, if it is not according to Christ, it lacks content, value, truth and ultimately stands for nothing. Nothing of any substantial power or good anyway. Empty lies, Paul says, 
propped up by what? Propped up by human traditions and the basic principles of this world. Human traditions. I, I expect that Paul uses it almost as a mockery. How different that is to the tradition you received when it was handed down to you, this gospel of Christ that was carefully guarded and passed on to you. How inferior and insubstantial compared to the tradition of Christ Jesus as Lord. Philosophy, depending on what for its meaning and coherence, its value and longevity, the basic principles of this world, this material world, the principles of created things rather than the creator. The principles that if you go down further in this chapter, chapter 2 verses 20 to 22, you'll see these principles along with our world are destined to perish. Take care, says Paul, as you walk in him, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on nothing but human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Do you see here at the end of the verse what Satan's great deceit in all of this is? He'll tell you all sorts of exciting things. He'll tell you plausible lies but in the end they are not on Christ. He'll tell you lies dressed up as wisdom but they can't be wisdom. Remember chapter 2 verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And so any approach to life that fails to grasp Christ's significance is an empty lie. No matter how esteemed its human origins may be or how persuasively it coheres with the principles of this world. And so brothers and sisters, walking in him, see the real danger here the persuasive lies that can take us captive. The lie that says, as it did to my friend Simon, that spiritual fullness is found beyond Christ. The lie that says I can deal with my battle of sin alone through moralism or religiosity or covering it up or making up for it with effort. In the end, that's an empty and hollow lie that will just leave me exhausted and enslaved. Well, the lie that says fullness is found elsewhere in the basic principles of this world, what we touch and taste, what we cultivate, what we renovate, how we recreate, what we accumulate. A lie that leaves me captivated by my fridge more than my Father in heaven. See to it, says Paul, that no one takes you captive through such hollow and deceptive philosophies. As our passage moves on, Paul switches tack. Having shown us what is gained by believing Satan's lie, what is gained? Well, nothing. Emptiness is gained. He now shows us what's at stake, what what we would lose by walking away from Christ and it's the exact opposite. Emptiness is what Satan offers. Fullness is what Christ offers. And so as you walk along in danger of walking away, realise who you would be walking away from, says Paul. I mean, Paul's done this all along, hasn't he, through this letter. He keeps coming back to this just in case we miss it, filling the Colossians and us now with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to miss him. For he knows that's what's going to keep you safe. And so he does it again here. Because for Paul, the horror of being deceived by Satan's lies, the real horror is seeing just who you have walked away from. Because he's wonderful. Whatever or whoever you abandon your walk in him for simply pales into insignificance alongside him. 
It is, uh, as Napoleon once said, he said this of Christ. He said, everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find a similar, one similar to Jesus Christ or anything that can approach his gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I can compare or explain him. Here, everything is extraordinary. And so Paul wants us to get that. And so in verses 9 to 12 he says two things that you need to have in your heart as you are in the danger of being captivated by another. He says these are the things you need to know. God is in Christ and you are in Christ. Firstly, verse 9, God is in Christ. As you come across these plausible lies that call you away, remember who he is. Remember verse 9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. If you're taken away from him, by whatever it is, realise that you're not leaving your friend, your buddy, your fix-it man, your inspiration, your crutch or whatever you may imagine him to be. You are walking away from your God. Do you see the enormous claim of the Christian gospel in this verse? The claim of God's grace and all its truth. The God who dwelt on Mount Sinai who dwelt in the tabernacle, in the temple, who was pleased, we're told, in Zechariah to dwell on Mount Zion, the God who is alone, as we sung tonight, the ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, now dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. God, your God, is fully present in Christ. In him God dwells. Napoleon was right. Here, in him, everything is extraordinary. He is fully unique. It's not that uh, God or the deity, as Paul uses here, I think poking at at anybody who thinks God can be found elsewhere, that that you can encounter him in various degrees or at varying levels in other religions or spiritual movements or in this world of nature, wherever you might think you might find him. No, apart from Christ, all is hollow and empty when it comes to God. The Gospel declares the whole fullness of God, all of God, all his goodness, all his compassion, his justice, his love is found in Jesus Christ, nowhere else. But even more wonderfully than that, as you consider walking away from him, realise the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. Your God is real. He's substantial. He's tangible. He's visible. He's present with us in body. And it was in his real body of flesh that he was tortured and died on a cross for you. Such that Paul can say, as he does in Acts chapter 20, on that tree God shed his blood. And so any philosophy that promises fullness outside of Jesus Christ is selling you in the end a bucket full of shiny lies. You want the full God? God is in Christ. And secondly, verse 10, you are in Christ. In fact, you have been given fullness in Christ. And so in searching for fullness beyond him or within this world, hear this, you have received in Jesus Christ as Lord, you have received fullness. The psalmist is right, your cup overflows. You're full. Overflowingly so tonight. If you have received Christ, you are full. There's no more room in the cup. All the fullness of God dwells in him and he is in you. You're full. 
Move away from Christ, no matter how substantial what your promise may seem, and you will lose. And so as we come towards a close, to see what you lose, Paul shows us just what is involved in being in Christ. This one that we receive, this one that we are called to walk in. He says he wants you to show what you have been through in him. And so he says this, realise the extraordinary difference Jesus has made to you. Verse 11, he says, in him you were also circumcised in putting off the sinful nature. Now we're going to have more to say next week about this whole metaphor that Paul starts to use here of circumcision to teach us about the experience of being in Christ. But here as he encourages us to keep walking in him, see what he is saying. In Christ you were circumcised. Not a literal circumcision, he says, done by human hands. No, this circumcision was done by Christ himself. What's Paul getting at? Why has he gone all complicated all of a sudden? It was all very simple, walk in him, and now he's talking about circumcision and baptism in verse 12. Well, take this in. Because perhaps you've lost sight of the violent consequences of receiving Christ. Circumcision here, as baptism is in verse 12, is a metaphor for death itself. Paul is saying this, and excuse me for the squeamish. When human hands perform the operation of circumcision, it's a fairly small and simple operation involving the removal of the foreskin, just a tiny bit of skin. Ah, but when Christ circumcises you, the procedure is a fair bit more violent and comprehensive. Now listen to another translation of verse 11 and you'll see what's happened to you in receiving Christ. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of of your whole body of sinful flesh. When Christ comes to you, to, when you receive him, he doesn't come to nip a little bit off you off and uh, leave you un- untouched. No, he comes to rip the whole thing off. When you receive Jesus as Lord, the Lord who died for you, by his death he circumcises you, removing your whole body of sinful flesh. The circumcision done by Christ involves ripping off your sinful nature, lump and whole. How else did you think Colossians 1.22 was believable? How else did you think it was going to be possible that you could actually, realistically, justifiably stand before the judge of all the earth as holy, as without blemish, as free from accusation, He's done it by ripping off your whole sinful nature and replacing it with, if you flick to chapter 3 verse 3, you'll see what he's replaced it with. Ripped off that mangy sinful skin and he's replaced it with his own. You are hidden in Christ. Now if you want to catch a picture of what this means for you and what a radical difference has happened to you who have received Christ, let me encourage you, uh, and I won't do this very often, uh, but let me encourage you to read or watch the movie The The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There you'll see this truth captured perfectly. Uh, In that movie, uh, the the Narnia series, where Aslan is is the king figure, the Jesus figure, uh, there's a character called Eustace, who as the story goes along becomes more and more dragon-like. This is his sinful nature, more and more lumpy and, and bumpy. And by the end of the movie, you see Eustace trying in vain to peel off this nature. He tries it once, he thinks he's got rid of this sinful nature and then all of a sudden it grows back again. He does it again and the same thing happens. He thinks, oh, i just got to try a bit harder and it keeps growing back. 
And then Aslan, the king, says this to him. You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, Eustace says. But I was desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. And the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And when he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself but hadn't done, then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smarted like nothing I'd ever felt before, but only for a moment. And after that it became perfectly delicious as soon as I started swimming and splashing in my new skin. Here, as Paul urges the Colossians to keep walking and not be captivated by Satan's lies, he is pulling out the biggest weapon in his gospel arsenal. Here is the heart of things. Paul says, when you receive Christ and and now as you walk in him, do you realise even the half of what being in him means? You are in him to the extent that his death was your death. To the extent, as he says in Romans 6, that our old self was crucified with him. To the extent that 2 Corinthians 5 says that when one died, we died. And so as the shiny, plausible, hollow lies of fullness beyond or apart from Christ begin to captivate your heart, fix this in your heart instead. One died for all, so you died. You can't walk away from Christ as some distant, disconnected observer. You were there. His death is your death. His body violently done away with, well, that was your body. There is great violence violence in your union with him. You were walking this life in your body of flesh. He stepped in and by his death he rips off the whole thing as you come to him. And so walk in him. With whom you not only died but, verse 12, you will also be raised by the very power of God. And so as we close, in view of all this, going back to verse 7, Paul says this, just keep walking in him. Walking with roots no longer in the hollow deceptive soil of human tradition or the principles of this world but the rich soil of your Saviour King. Walk in him digging deeper and deeper into him as you hear again and again his gospel. Roots so deep and so established that you grow over time to depend on him for everything. Walk in him with roots that will see you built up, growing, fruitful in every good work. Your life ever deeper in him, flourishing in him, strengthened in him as you hear again and again this gospel. As I look at verses 6 and 7 which are really the heart of this letter, this is a picture that I have in my mind. A picture of a man or a woman who is walking in Christ, whose steps are ever surer, roots ever deeper. The fruit of the gospel is budding in all of their life as they are made strong by this gospel. They walk strong in the King with no fear of the shiny hollow lies all around, walking strong and, well, laughing. The sort of laugh that comes when you are overwhelmingly thankful. Just so very thankful. That's how full you are. Knowing that in him there's no more striving, no more searching for fullness beyond him, no more trying to deal with my sinful flesh alone. He's done that. No more anxiousness about the full life that this world offers. And how will you know if that's the person you are becoming in him? Well, you'll know it if your impulse is this, to look to heaven and the king of heaven with one word on your lips.
thanks. Let's pray. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Father God, we do praise you for your gospel, the word of truth, the word of grace. And we pray, Father, that you would make us strong in that word, that you would enable us, our feet and our arms, our whole bodies, to walk in him this week. Give us the wisdom to discern the hollow and deceptive lies that are all around us and the wisdom to listen carefully to the word of your spirit and the word that will build us up in him. And Father, we pray this, that we may be presented mature before you. And we pray this for one another. Amen.